I'll hand over. Welcome, David. Yeah, welcome, Brian. Thanks, Thank David. So, welcome to our, um, what are these activities called? Inspiring Ideas. And uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Brian Hook. Um, I'm the Prefecture Minister for Bremer Brisbane, also the Chair of the Chapsey Commission. Um, and I've been a Minister here in Queensland for about 15 years. The theme of our topic is about connecting to communities, and we're particularly going to be looking at the Queensland Community Alliance, but I want to start away from there first of all. Um, I had 11 years in ministry in Harvey Bay. The Alliance was not in Harvey Bay, but my sense is that as churches and we want to engage communities, we've actually got to work out who our partners are. One of my experiences in Harvey Bay was I did a lot of community work, but it's as though I was, I was almost on my own a lot of the time. The congregation where I would come with me in some places, but not others. And that where you actually had partnerships with not just people, but organisations, you had much greater um, potential of getting things done. And an example from Harvey Bay is uh, the Deputy Mayor and I sat down one time and talked about people being lonely on Christmas Day and we started doing a Christmas Day lunch. Now, at the time I left, we'd been running that for eight years and we were having two to three hundred people who were coming to a free lunch on Christmas Day. We could have tried to do that on our own. We would have had maybe 20 or 30 people. Part of it's working out who your partners are. Can I say, I think one of the really important things in choosing your partners is who either shares your values or who do you work with so you don't lose your values. And that, for me, is where the Community Alliance come, comes in. And when I moved to Brisbane, the Queensland Community Alliance is about churches, unions, community groups, working together for the common good and able to hold firm to their values as they bring those into the space. So when we're working with unions, it's not that we have to take on their values or they have to take on ours, but we do because we actually desire the common good for our people. So for me, community engagement is essential, but knowing what your core values are and what you hold on to, I think enables you to do that with integrity. And I believe that Queensland Community Alliance is one of the ways that allows us to do that with integrity. Does that, does that make some sort of sense? They're not the only group, and they may not be where you are. You still need to find those groups that allow you to hold integrity with who you are as you work within the community. So, I'm going to ask if there's any questions at this point. Before I hand over to Dave, he's going to tell us a little bit about the Queensland Community Alliance. But any, any questions, comments? Does that make sense? And how much you engage can depend on what capacity is there within the congregation, the people you've got, but you need to know your values and who your partners are. And we work with schools, see I've worked with council, the Queensland Community Alliance is one particular model um, that has, has strength because of the partners that are there. And uh, we don't want to spend all of our time talking, we want to be doing some things today, so I'm going to hand it to uh, Dave Copeland. Dave is the uh, lead organiser for the Queensland Community Alliance um, within Queensland or Brisbane within Queensland. Dave's going to tell us a little bit about the history of the Queensland Community Alliance um, to help that put in the frame for us. Um, g'day everyone. So, yep, Reverend Brian introduced me. I'm Dave Copeland. I'm really glad to be here. Um, I'm sure that we have 
a welcome from the traditional owners, but as I was not here for that, I'd like to acknowledge that you know we're on the land of uh, the, the traditional owners, the Gabba people, and pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. And I guess I do that particularly because as we look to work around justice, we you know are on country that has had long histories of both injustice and struggles for justice, and um, I want to recognise that I'm on that land and in that history, and hopefully part of shaping the, the future of that history. Uh, together with other people who share a passion for justice. Um, so listen, um, my, I, my, I work for the Clinton Community Alliance. I'm a lead organiser. I'm part of a small group of people who work with the 27, 28 partner organisations that are involved. Um, and I'll tell you a bit about myself in a bit. And we'll basically the plan for the session today is Reverend Brian and I are going to tag team it. Um, we wanted to present a little bit about the Alliance and some, a way, a mode of doing engagement. Um, and we wanted to maybe model... Uh, a, mod, a, a tool or a, a technique that you could use inside the congregation around this um, and and tell some stories about how that leads to action. Um, so listen, we're just going to quick check in. So we've got a big group of people who are from outside of South East Queensland. Yes. So People do live outside of South East. <laughs> <laughs> I had suspected and now it seems to be true. Um, no, so that's okay. We, we weren't sure who was going to show up and so we've had a few different ideas about how we were going to run this session, but we're going to kind of be reactive and work together with it. So in terms of working with the Community Alliance at the moment is based primarily in Brisbane. It is looking at... In South East Queensland. And, and looking at where it expands. But as I said, my previous experience is from Harvey Bay and uh, our friend from Woolgaroo. Um, what's your name again? Bruce. Bruce. What we're trying to do, in my mind, is how you turn connections into partnerships. Okay. This is one way. There are things from this that are really useful wherever you are. One, a few things that I'd say are key things with the things I've learned from the Alliance. One is it starts at grassroots and gets the issues that are there burning in people who are in your congregation. What are the things that keep them awake at night? And those issues are things that you try and work on rather than synod or presbytery saying here's what you should work on. So one of the strengths I find with the Alliance is it tries to get from grassroots saying, what are the issues that really burn for you? How do we do that? Now, in the Alliance space, you can do that with unions and, that are there. Harvey Bay, there weren't any unions there. There were other groups to work with. There were some community groups. There were partnerships. So though we're talking about the Alliance, I think the principles we've got actually will work where you are, but they may be with different partners. But I think there are things there to to learn and to and to pick up. Is that fair yep. enough? Because yep. I can't say how long it'll take the alliance to get to Napronum, but I think it'll be a little while. <coughs> yeah. But no, but that's okay. Because but we'll, there are things to learn. Yeah. So what we'll do is we'll um, structure it in a way where we we present some of the basic underlying principles, and then we'll present some tools that you could use locally in terms of um, engagement. But before we do that, I wanted to tell a bit of the history yep. of this stuff organised. Um, so, this school of community organising actually comes from the United States, largely. Um, started in the 1930s, um, uh, a guy called Saul Alinsky, and it was, he was a youth worker. And he was a youth worker who'd actually been charged with working with young people at Juliet Prison. And he was interested in, and this was way back before a lot of the modern study around criminology, and it was looking at how powerlessness and how... Um, uh, not feeling connected to community were some of the key factors behind 
and, and poverty were factors in crime. And so that was where he was interested in. But he, rather than being interested in being an academic and publishing papers, or being a clinician and working with people individually, he was interested in how do you challenge and change this. And so, and this history of organising in the United States, it started in the big cities of the US and in the poor parts of the cities. So it was the industrial areas. It's an old term that now we'd say the ghettos. So it was the, the areas where you had a slum being built around a giant factory or a giant uh, manufacturing zone, and new migrants particularly would often come into those areas. And um, there were often areas of real hardship and poverty and disadvantage. And it was saying, how do we address what's going on here? And this started in the Great Depression. Um, now, this history of organising is involved in kind of connecting with unions and trying to address the real issues of people on the ground rather than the radicalism of both fascism and communism, which were very alive in the 1930s in that time, and saying instead of getting into big ideological pushes, how do we actually address what's happening for people? Um, if you fast forward 50, 60 years, this school of organising has been very much involved in the civil rights movement in the United States. So how do we train and develop lay leaders to stand up around the pressures they're facing, particularly within the, the, um, uh, the Southern Christian um, Coalition, sorry I'm getting the term wrong, but there many of the groups who were really involved in developing leadership, so Martin Luther King and, and others within that network, and also very much involved in the, the farm workers movement. So in the 70s, the 60s, sorry, 50s, 60s and 70s, you had the Mexican and Latin American communities in California and the Western states coming in, um, picking uh, lettuces and tomatoes and a whole lot of stuff, and there was real levels of exploitation, and these were, it was a model of how do we organise these communities to actually get justice and have them able to stand up and stop their levels of poverty and abuse that was occurring. So this is, that's some of the back history of this tradition of organising. In the US, this organising is predominantly faith-based. So it's the churches and the mosques and the synagogues. And predominantly churches, but often in some cities in the US, the, the synagogues and the churches coming together and really training and developing their leadership. And... The story of it coming to Australia is interesting because, you know, we're not America. Our culture is different. We are not, we are much more of a secular culture. You know, we don't have the presumption of Christianity that still, to a large extent, exists in the United States. And um, in 2007, uh, there were a group of people who were very interested in how do we do new kinds of alliance building? And how do we get less transactional in our alliance building? And the interesting thing is, these were the unions in New South Wales. And they were looking back over their history of them being involved with the community around particular campaigns. And a lot of their review, and a particular woman uh, who did the review, said what they tended to do was build a, a network for an issue, come together, run a campaign, and then once they either won or lost, dump all those relationships and move on. And that was, the unions were really thinking about this in 2007 because they just had the Your Right, work, your right to Work campaign. Big campaign around um, the, the changes to industrial relations legislation. And in some places that had led to quite considerable community engagement, but they'd just done exactly the same thing again. They said, oh, we won't do it, but we're going to pull all the money and all the focus on the energy, and it all dumped again. So there was a group of people inside the union movement saying, well, how do we learn from the United States? And how do we learn from this faith-based organising? Which is quite a... Believe me, it was, a, it was a fairly controversial thing within the union. 
Um, and part of the reason for that is it was very uh, attractive at the time. You had a community organiser who'd come out of this school of organising um, become president of the United States. So Barack Obama, before uh, he'd gone off and become a legal professional, had been a community organiser in the, the Woodlawn organisation in Chicago. He'd been, the interesting thing is that he went down every week and picked his pay up from the Catholic Archdiocese because there's a range of churches who had agreed to be part of this network of churches that were going to organise in one section of the poor African-American part of Chicago. But the Catholics said, well, we've got the capacity to run the money. Everyone else give us the money and we'll pay the organiser. So once a week, off for our rent and got his paycheck. Um, they pay weekly over there. Um, but um, so that's sort of the back history of it. What's happened here in Australia is um, we've adapted it to our local context. And it's been a process of trade unions and faith organisations and ethnic associations and community organisations saying, well, how do we learn this process here? And I'll, we'll tell some of the stories of how it happened in Ipswich and in Logan and on the south and the north side of Brisbane. And then we'll play you a video which kind of documents the founding assembly that, um, that Jeff Batkin was referring to. But before we do that, I kind of just want to... I want to kind of put one piece out there, if it's okay. And actually, before that, I should introduce myself properly. My background, and I, I've been to... This is my second um, United Church Synod, but I'm not a United Church member. I'm actually not even a Christian. Um, I'm an atheist, uh, and if you'd asked me six or seven years ago, would I be interested in working with churches? I would have said, maybe. But my imagination wouldn't have gone very far. Because I would have said, oh, maybe, but I don't know what we'd work on. But then I, I worked for an organisation called Amnesty International. And I worked for Amnesty here in Australia, and then I worked for Amnesty in East Africa. And I think it was actually working in another culture where you can, OK, I've got to respect all different cultures and respect all different things, that I found myself working with human rights activists on the ground all the time. And many of them found the courage and the belief in their work from their faith. So there was a guy... Uh, called John. Um, he would have had three other names, and John would have been his anglicised name, but he was, he was a Catholic commission uh, for the Justice and Peace Officer in a town called Elderit in uh, Kenya. Elderit's high up in the, the, the highlands. It's where all the marathon runners from Kenya come from because it's 2,500 metres, 3,000 metres above sea level. And we were there because there'd been post-election violence in Kenya. And, you know, a country that... Kenya has huge amounts of pride in an African context about having a history of democracy since the 60s, having early independence from Great Britain, um, a really thriving and strong economy, and fairly successful transitions. But they had had a really close-run election, and it was leading to violence because it was being disputed. We're five years on, and it's happening again. But right now, that was what was going on. And I was going in for Amnesty to research it. And this guy, John, when I say he's Catholic Commission of Justice and Peace, he had an office the size of this table, and the only thing that dictated that he had any status is he had a pile of manila folders this high, and they were, you know, papal encyclicals and kind of little kind of press releases that had come from Rome that meant, right, he was the Catholic Commission for Justice and Peace. But he had belief. And he was getting out, talking to people, his young people, who'd been involved in driving out the Kikuyu, the, another ethnic group, from his town. And we were coming from Amnesty, from the International Secretary, trying to get stories. And he said, you come with me, and I'll take you to these young people. They will tell you the stories of what's going on, and you'll understand that they were actually the perpetrators. They were the young people who attacked these people, and they will tell you the story about why it happened. So 
it was easy to get testimonies from victims, but to get testimonies from the people involved, this was really difficult. And this man, John, delivered that. And I said to him afterwards, I said, why did you bring me to your community? And he said, well, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm a Catholic, and, my, and I know my faith teaches me that the only way we can live together is if we tell the truth about what's happening and we get word for justice. And he was taking quite a personal risk. We were walking out of that town, but we were going to publish things that, you know, we were the people there that John had taken us to. And I, I said that, will you be safe? And he said, well, I have my faith. And that was challenging to me, because I wasn't that safe. But also, the reason I do this work now is because two years ago I came to this synod. And we were trying to build this alliance, and I was really worried about it. I was passionate about it because I wanted to find new ways of challenging people to leave around the things that mattered to me. And then Dave Baker got up and said, right, we're going to do this. We're like, you know, the Israelites following the cloud. We don't know where we're going, but we've just got to have faith and follow the cloud and we'll find the community there. I'm really doing a bad paraphrase of his fairly <laughs> unstructured homily. Because Dave loves an unstructured homily. Um, and I came away from that thinking, if he's got enough faith and confidence in what we're doing here, and he's willing to invest his leadership in that, and if his church actually has that heart and passion for justice, that they're willing to have that faith and go with it, then it's now in my interest not only to go, great, I've got them on board, wow, good for us, but it's in my interest now for that church to survive and be strong. So, and that was a real flip for me. Um, it was no longer a transactional relationship, it was actually a relationship of shared interest. And so it meant when Dave called me and said, we've got this giant problem with bloody religious instruction, this government, this Labor government's going to get rid of religious instruction in schools, that I said, well, this isn't something that the Alliance necessarily work on because it won't come through this local listening process that we're going to go through. But this is an issue for Dave, this is an issue for the church, um, this is an issue that actually we've got people not understanding each other and the extremes on either end whacking each other because they like being in those extremes and actually the middle ground's getting lost. How do we bring conversation together? And Dave was saying, I can't talk to the bloody minister. Sorry. can't talk to the minister. My colleagues have given me a meeting in a month's time. I said, no, someone there doesn't understand what's going on and how important this is. We set up the meeting, we had the conversations, and we said, well, how do we bring together the moderate middle to understand what's going on? Because religious instruction wasn't going to get pulled out of schools as much as some people were agitating for it. And nor was religious instruction all perfect. And in fact, one of the problems is the best and the, the most compassionate and the most understanding didn't have the capacity to organise their people to get in and deliver it. So kids were getting nothing or mixed up stuff. And we found that common good. Anyway, I've gone completely off segue, but that's, that's why I'm here. I'm here because I want this church to be stronger. Because if your church is stronger and if your values... And I mean stronger just not in an aspiration way. Like concretely, getting out there, getting new people in, getting engaged. I want your church to be stronger because it'll make a better community for my kids. Because it'll mean that the politics of fear and envy and hatred will be, have less power and that we'll actually have dialogues and spaces where people can discover their self-interest. And this is the last piece I want to... If it's all right, Ron, before we go on this. But to do that and to build better community engagement and to actually go from partnership to... Sorry, from connections to partnership... I think this church, if I can as an outsider, 
you've got to understand your self-interest better. I think United Church sees missional work as going out and doing good for others. Would that be a fair summary? Yeah, and I think the danger in that is that we actually objectify the other. Now, you know, that might seem unfair, but if we don't see our interests with this, you know, there's a quote which, um, now I'm going to get this wrong because I haven't prepared in advance, but it's that, you know, if you come here to help me, then I don't need your help, but if you come because you see your liberation tied up with mine, then let us work together. And that's from a traditional uh, Aboriginal leader up in Jabaluka area, and I don't have a name accessible for me, but I've met the daughter. Anyway, we'll come in. Um, the, the United Church doesn't understand your self-interest. Because and at the core of our organising says that we build connections best. We enable relationships of trust. We can imagine big things together. If we build strong relationships within the community based upon us sharing our stories of who we are and asking people what their stories and their passions are and then finding those that you can work together with to build common interests. So Reverend Brian, when he went and met with the mayor um, in Harvey Bay, there was that common shared self-interest. But so often we say, well, we've got to give people emergency relief. And I guess what I'd say to them is when you give people emergency relief, do you sit down with them and say, what's going on for you? And then you also share a story about, well, this is why I do this and this is why it matters to me. Yes, I do. Good, good. And do those stories move you to action? Yes, they do. And what action have you done? I have made a partnership with Target. Good. I have, I have a, a formula that I go through with every person and it deals with their housing, yep. their health, their education and employment prospects. Yep. Um, and any other issues, disability, addictions, you name it. And then I say to them, have you ever had any encounter with Jesus Christ? Yep. And I say to them, I'm here because God, Jesus Christ is my Saviour and Lord and could be yours as well. Have you ever prayed a prayer? Yes, I pray all the time. Let's have a prayer now. And then I will give you food and I will give you clothing and I will give you a target voucher and I will ask you to come back in two weeks' time. So, and that, so, and I think, and that sounds great. The, the next thing I'd say, though, is if someone tells you, the one, one of the, what's going on for me is, you know, domestic violence, I'm fleeing an abusive partner, it's all crap, I need to, sorry, I'm it's all terrible, I should, um, I need to get some help. Yeah. I guess part of it is saying, particularly if you see them a second time, it's, and particularly if you see some strength in them, you know, iron sharpened iron, if you see something that says, this person wants to address it, it's about saying, would you be prepared to share your story, or would you be prepared to work with us to try and address that? Are there other mums that we could get together who got that? Now, you know, you don't put this on someone in crisis, but it's about imagining that you can have shared interest with even the homeless, with even that stranger, you know, with even the outcast, and saying, could we organise together? And that's not just, and I'm, you know, I'm no way in trying to prevent evangelization, but it's not just through evangelising and saying, have a personal relationship with Christ. Yeah. It's saying that maybe if you do that, then can we imagine a way that we can build strength to take action there? Yeah. One of the barriers to that is the whole issue of transport. People cannot afford to drive to the church. Good. Okay. And this is where we get back to self-interest. Yeah. 
So let's tell. Let me tell a quick story about Ipswich or Logan. Or do we want to show the video? No, if you did, well, if you don't transport, it'd be Logan. But um, so quickly, I'll share an organising story, and then we'll yeah. show the video. So this ally started. Can people see me if I sit down? Our life started first organising in Logan. And we've done that because we said we need to go to a place where there's some grit and some disadvantage and it's close to... And we wanted to get recognition at a state level, but we didn't. We knew that we'd have to build our chops locally and we'd have to do local organising. So in Logan, uh, uh, and there was... You were from Mogan? Mackay. Mackay. I'm Mogan. Yep, there was your minister yep. was involved at Dean Lee. There was um, uh, Reverend Hohaya Matthews and Dawn Matthews from Logan Multicultural Uniting Church. Um, there was uh, people from the Catholic Church, there were people from the, the Nurses Union, the Public Sector Union, the United Voice Union, um, Logan Community Group Alliance, all came together. Uh, and they said, let's listen to stories in this area. And about twice as many people as this gathered in a room around tables like this and one night and they shared stories. So they shared stories about a mum we had stories about people just like the mum you said who had some problems with transport. And Reverend Ohio's daughter, he had 15 kids. He had 10 kids of his own and five adopted kids. And one of his adopted daughters, who was a young Aboriginal woman from <laughs> Port Augusta in South Australia, um, whose name's gone out of my head, um, she uh, was working at Forever Young, at a, a, for those who don't know, a girls' clothing shop at um, Mount Gravatt but couldn't get home each night because she worked at 9pm and the, 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 the bus stopped at 8 and the buses had been cut and there was no buses in Logan and the public transport, um, the, the council said, well, public transport's not our problem. That's a state government issue. And the state government said, well, we fund all the public transport. They're not putting any money in. Brisbane puts in 91 million and Logan puts in none. And then Logan said, no, we're too poor. Um, now, Logan wasn't too poor. They had $20 million surplus every year. They had quite a lot in the bank. But also, poor people need public transport. <laughs> um, and so we got together and we did a research action process and we realised there was this buck passing. And we asked people, what do you want to work on? And they said transport. They said transport and safety. And so we, then we went and negotiated with the council. We met with the council. Uh, we went into meetings with the council where we took faith, union and community people and had discussions. And a deputy CEO walked into this room, didn't, didn't say hello to anyone, just banged the table and said, we're not going to put money in a council, in a transport. That's ridiculous. And we realised that we weren't being taken seriously. And so we used an organising model about sharing stories, getting people fired up. We found out that many people were travelling two hours to get like a 15-minute car drive because they'd have to go up to Mount Gravatt and down to get to somewhere else east-west because there's no east-west transport. And then we organised. We got 350 people together at St Francis's College and Reverend Jeff Hoyt was the co-chair from the Anglican Church and Linda um, Redhall from the United Voice and someone from the community. It must have been... Oh, um, Chris Saunders from Logan Community Blight. And we got the council and the state government both to promise to work together. They, they came together with a process chaired by Martin Rand, who's from the Catholic Church there. He's on the, the church council and also a community member. And we managed to get them to promise to come up with an integrated plan. We got the council to commit a million dollars a year in recurrent funding for public transport. And we got um, uh, the, the state government to actually explore new ways of innovative transport because they'd stuffed the design of the new suburbs up there so you couldn't get buses into them. 
because they're all little streets in Flagstone and Yarrabilba that the buses can't turn around in. And so, just to end that story, a month ago, um, so with the council, I put the money in, and we went, Mayor Luke Smith, um, who was a pastor in quite a, from the more conservative side of politics, um, had been active in the LNP until he ran for mayor. He agreed to work with us, which was a really upset for the books. And just, and just a month ago, the state government had announced the first trials of demand-responsive transport, which is kind of like a public transport Uber. So you book a transport for where you need to get to, it'll take you to a transport hub, but it'll only cost you the price of a transplant fare. And so they're trialling that as a way to work out new ways to do transport in, in Logan. So that's an example of the organising cycle. So now what we want to do is show you a video about where we've got to, um, about engagement uh, 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 across the whole of the Alliance, around the issue of care. So this is one of the two issues at our founding assembly. Um, now, so we'll go to the back to the beginning. Just this started with a whole lot of listening. It started with us gathering stories around churches where we heard stories around people difficulty accessing appropriate aged care and lots of people's stories around mental illness and difficulty accessing appropriate service living with mental illness. Um, we heard Lifeline um, chaplains sharing stories around some of the challenges that they heard stories around suicide, Church of Christ care in Queensland. They told stories about people being going to hospital, then coming back from hospital, no support, and a terrible story about a young man in Bouval where he went to hospital because he was, you know, really depressed and, and suicidal. He came back from hospital and seven days later, now the chaplain from that the housing had visited him, but seven days later he climbed to the top of the building and he jumped and killed himself. Now, the shocking part about that should be the suicide, but it isn't. The shocking thing is the hospital had no idea. Um, I was actually away on a retreat with Dave Baker and others, and you, Reverend Brian and Reverend Rob, and we heard about this from Church of Christ, and I called the hospital and said, did you know about this? Because we were working with them on mental health, and they said, no, no, that's the wrong place. We haven't heard about that, that can't be here. And I thought, oh, Dave, silly person, you haven't checked your facts, you haven't got the details, you don't know what's going on here, you've made a terrible mistake. And then went back to Jerry Weatherall from Church of Christ, he said, no, you know, our CEO, no, David Swain was out there, and it was definitely Ipswich Hospital, he was there with the family last night. And the hospital had no idea. They said, oh, we just rely on the police to tell us when they kill themselves. Build parent take action, build relationships, 
Do research to find out what the solution is. Find out why it's broken. Not just for this person, Absolutely. but for every other one. If she's had this problem, how many other people in the community are having this problem? And that's, that's my episode. I'm absolutely horrified. I've seen all this stuff on TV. It's all advertised. It's there. It's fantastic. It's not. And so one of the things we argue is that actually most of these, many of these services started with churches and unions. Well, mainly churches setting up charities like Wesley Mission. We've now got to a stage where they're predominantly government funded. And, and what, we, then what we've lost is that accountability to the community. And part of that is because our communities have turned inwards, we've lost the, the relationships and the, the strength to come together, and we've become more individualised. So one of the things that your self-interest is bound up and out in building a more connected community that a whole government and the markets would count. And we're going to show a way that we do that. And then Actually, I'm going to stop talking. Yep. Well, I was going to say, Dave, I'm not sure, because a few times we've come up and you've heard Dave mention the telling of stories. And if we talk theoretically, we deal with the head. But when you tell stories, you actually get down into the guts of people. And people who may not be well-educated, who may not, can still tell a story about what's going on. And we find that gathering and sharing stories, you actually start, the issues bubble up when people are encouraged to share stories because it comes from the feeling rather than focusing on the head and that stories are a really important part of things. I have a link to the Hansel Hospital. I'm actually co-chair of partnering with consumers in social centre care at Hansel. It's been working towards improving all of those things within the hospital system. However, there's been a theme come up with one of these things that are organised. Uh, there's two, two parts of this. One is I've seen the introduction of Standard 2 across Queensland, but consumer, it's terrible. It's absolutely a misnomer because you've just actually been brought into a compliance system and your, your views as a consumer are actually just being part of the Queensland Health Compliance System. And it is, a, it, is, it is not a help at all. It's supposed to be there to help, but it's just a fix -up. The other side of things is, for all the stuff you're saying, man, I've seen one of those state organisation things for suicide in Tazewell. We've become the first uh, regional city with a strategy for suicide and some government implementation. One of the saddest things in that is that we're losing around about three young men every week in Tazewell. Mm. Some of them are in the army. Mm. We have three percent. We have double the national average for transitional workers mm. in Tazewell, and we nearly we have one and a half times. Um, the rate of suicide for just a normal population. One of the sad things is that in that strategy, there is no acknowledgement of men and no acknowledgement that the key problem is with young men between 14 and 44. It has got every other group known to men in there with something, but not men. And I am seeing all these sort of partnership things and community things actually avoiding men. Mm -hmm. and men uh, yes, and I've seen, seen this stuff, and I listen to it, and I'm just like, I am shaking my head. So for all the good work that you're doing and all that sort of stuff, it is still going astray because of the, a lot of minority agendas going on and the real issues are not actually being addressed. Is there a particular story, though, that really gets you angry about what's going to happen? Like, well, it gets me really angry. My, my son was at school in his final years, 
I had a young man who just happened to be Melanesian, uh, Zion, brilliant, uh, brilliant young man, smile lit up his face, was actually deliberately run over after a fight at a party. The uh, Melanesian Maori uh, Aboriginal lads that my son was with at school, um, nobody listened to him. Uh, two years later, nearly two, 18 months later, the court system actually uh, gave the guy that deliberately run this young fellow over, Nehe, uh, an 18 month suspended sentence. Within, within, um, within 48 hours of that happening, this young man hung himself. Because he, he was only 14 when uh, he, the guy died in his arms bleeding on Riverside Drive. I've had, I've had three years of living with a son with well, two, two months later, Alex Alasala from the car boys, he committed suicide. But from Zion's friend, it has a knock-on effect. And there's five, if not six, young men that were there that night that eventually committed suicide. My son eventually got uh, pulled up by police doing 131 in his car because he was actually taking too many risks. Mm. I've lived with the side effects of suicide and I am really, really, really angry that governments, both federal, state, and every other community groups have not recognised men 15 to 44 as the key problem for suicide and its identity. I'm not trying to do something about that. Cool. Alright? No. But I don't I don't fully believe in all the spiel about this alliance because it comes from a particular perspective. I really want to see God's perspective and some justice in there, and I want to see some justice for men. Cool. So I do you want to sorry, I talk too much. You're right, Dave. And I, you're right, I am a fighter. No, it's good. I like I'm working it. with the army, I'm working with the hospital, I'm working with a and I, all sorts of different areas for this, but I don't trust them because I haven't been the number one issue. I'm not going to trade stories with you, but tell you I share some of those pain. Okay. Okay. Suicide is so huge for men. I have got such a passion for men at the moment in this country. So, my best friend suicided 15 years ago. No, I don't carry that. I still. For me, one of the things with this stuff is it allows you to tell your story and to gather people so that it's not just you trying to do it on your own. And as much as you can say it's a spiel, it's actually about getting people in who you are and people around you to share those stories and say, right, this hurts and this keeps hurting and we're going to try and do something about it. And I, whether it's male suicide or other issues we have, a part of this stuff is saying, what are the things that really hurt? And together we're going to do something about it. And even if it's not my pain, mm -hmm. that pain is big enough and I can see how it affects my community that we're going to do something about it. So it's not well, just... I'm happening, I need to tell you, I'm yep. happening. Look, I'm maybe in a small congregation, but I'm happening. Yep. yep. I think it is worth... And that's where the power of story comes. I think it's about tapping into that because it hurts like hell. When you see your child hurt like hell. Yeah. Even like for me, I, I, I actually had to go into and meet a Melanesian couple for the first time with a woman screaming on the floor. Um, yeah, 
I, I have a reason to be. Yep. And I've got a picture of my, of Rob holding my six-month-old daughter. Right? Which is about two months before you suicide. So that's what I carry with me. And we'll leave that for now, but you're not alone. I know I'm not. There's okay. too many. You're not alone. Um, and it is about gathering the things that hurt and saying that even though... And I'm a minister in a church. I'm in a more senior position. I can always get myself hurt. Okay? This allows people who are in congregations at grassroots have their stories heard and acted on. And that's what I really like about this stuff. It's a process that says it doesn't matter about where you are in the organisation. What matters is that you've got stories that need to be heard and shared and worked on. That's one reason I believe in this stuff. You need to know that the number one thing I'm trying to get into Queensland Health is to tell the story. Yep. For people to tell their story for... I, I, the, the number one thing that I've done is that I actually did the uh, elective surgery, I reviewed it, and got them to tell the story of what elective mm. surgery was. And you know what, you've reduced the actual re-emission and the rework by 80%. And it was an hour and a half. One of the things, the main tool that we wanted to teach in this thing is how do you actually hear stories in a way that allow you to take action together? And it's how do you start with what people's experiences are, gather them, and then find strength, find leaders, find stories that move people to action and find issues that could be part of your church's mission. And the first thing we do in this kind of organising, once we've built relationships in a particular area and we've got a sense that they want to do organising, is we run things just like what we're going to do now. We call them a table talk. It actually comes from the term house meeting was in the US, but it's basically, it's a discussion that doesn't go into analysis, it doesn't go into ideology, it doesn't go into problem solving. It actually starts with stories. And it doesn't go into um, your big public stories about all the things you've done in your life. It doesn't go into, it goes into the intersection between private and public. So it's where, and we actually saw two examples of it. It's where there's a public issue like a hospital system not working, or like uh, uh, you know a new intervention being introduced that isn't working for suicide, connects to a private life. So where it's your son that's connected to, you're looking for that intersection. Now you don't go too far into people's private life. You don't go, you know, you don't want to know, them, you know, details of their marriage or things that don't matter, except as it affects a public issue. And people share what they're comfortable with. But the, the big thing about this process is. You can use this easily. Anyone can do this. It's not a difficult process to run, but it's about sharing stories around what matters to you. Um, so what, in the Alliance, um, we all of the things that we work on starts with these stories in a local area. So what we'd like you to do for the next half hour is to go around. So who's done a table talk before? Who's been involved in one? Reverend Rob, Jeff Acton. Okay. So what I'd like you to do is there's two rules to it. One is that you've got a co-chair, um, go with these guys. Yep. Uh, who have we got here? Lynn? No? Where's. Who am I missing? Where's. Um, oh, Karen Seeker. Karen's just gone into something. Ah. Call the. We could ask Jeff to switch. Teacher. 
Yeah, Jeff, can you, can you work with that group down the back there? Is that okay? Um, so what we're going to do is you get a table host, and the table host has permission to interrupt and to keep things moving so everyone who wants to gets heard. But the table host's other role is to keep on pushing for individual stories, specific stories. And the reason we get to stories is because stories are where the power is and they're where you really get a true understanding. If you stay at the level of ideas, you listen to argue and debate. When you listen to stories, you listen to hear and connect. And also, stories are what evoke imagination and response and memory so that other people can share things that relate and connect to them. So what we're going to do now is that we're going to also have a, a note taker. So those, those handouts that I've given you, if you can appoint someone as a note taker, these stories that we gather, uh, and we'll, we'll do, uh, uh, Reverend Rob will help get someone to be a note taker. So we're going to use the book at that one. These stories that we gather, they're going to be fed into the alliance process of listening. Okay, So they're going to be some of the things that challenge us to action, but they're also things for you to think about in your local area. What are we going to do in response to this? Um, these and the last thing I want to say is these stories are not confidential, but nor are they to be shared willy-nilly. In our listening process, and we'll show a video at the end, we listen to stories to move us to action, but then we say to the person who shared the story, will you share this further and take an action on it? So they're not hidden away behind confidentiality and no one can ever say them again, but they're also not for blabbering out anywhere without respect. They're in the middle ground of respectful communication. Does that make sense? Now, before we do the table talk, are there any questions? Let's pray. I guess the other thing I would say is your story doesn't have to follow on from the person before you. It's really about, I think we're going to, we'll go with what actually keeps you awake. What is the thing that really... Um, yeah. and I'll let you guys work out in your tables. If you want to start with prayer, that's fine, but we'll do that table by table, if that's okay. Okay, so we're going to break into this. We're going to spend half an hour. Are there any other questions before we do this? I'm planning to uh, connect the alliance with stories. Sorry, I'm okay. lost. Can, we, can you hold that tension and we'll come back to it at the end? Is that okay? Yeah. We'll give you an answer at the end? Cool. Just, I just want to make sure we get through the time. Okay, any other questions before we start this process? It's, I guess to say the story is how a process the alliance uses to get... To, to decide what we work on. Works on okay. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to ask people to share stories, short, brief stories about what keeps you up at night. Uh, and it doesn't have to be literally what keeps you up at night. It's not, it's not necessarily the barking dog. It's about what are those things that really worry matter to you. Okay, so we'll spend, what time is it now, Reverend Rob? It's uh, five past three. Okay, so we, when this session ends at 3.30? 3.30. Okay, so we'll go to three, we'll go to 3.30. Thank you for, so I hope you found it useful. Just saying here, in terms of the process, the stories lead to identifying what the issue may be and then a group of people actually work on that issue and work with experts trying to come up with what are some practical solutions that we can work with depends on who you're actually trying to could be local government, could be state government who you're going to work with to try and get the solution you want identify the stories that lead to the that identify a problem so you can then work on what's the appropriate solution or, or multiple solutions to try and get government engaged at some level and you've got to ask or another decision maker or another decision maker but it's got to be one that that decision maker can do 
you don't ask local government to do something that the state should do, because they'll easily say, we'll support you as they do it. We're going to show it's 3.30, so it is afternoon tea. We do have a video which we'll put on. If you need to go, that's fine. Thank you very much for being here. I want to thank Dave. Dave's come up here. Thank you. And uh, thank you for your attendance today.